Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Huma Haq, the Associate Director of the South Asia Center here at the Atlantic Council. And on behalf of my colleagues and our President, Frederick Kemp, I'd like to welcome you all here today for a timely discussion on Iran's regional role after the nuclear deal. I'd also like to welcome our live audience who's maybe watching at home. Uh, we sit at a, crucial juncture, a critical juncture for Iran, the United States, and its allies, and the entire international community. After over 30 years of relative isolation, and intensifying sanctions, Iran may be entering a new phase of engagement spurred by the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action reached in July. At the Atlantic Council, we view this historic moment as one that holds immense opportunity. Our Iran Task Force has served as a comprehensive source of analysis on Iran by bringing together key American, Iranian, and regional stakeholders the task force has made significant strides in increasing our understanding of the JCPOA and investigating its geopolitical, geopolitical effects. Until now, we have primarily heard perspectives from outside Iran on the deal, but today we're going to hear more about the deal from an Iranian perspective. Um, we're going to learn more about the internal dynamics and Iran's intended role in the region and in international community following the JCPOA. These viewpoints are going to be presented by uh, Nasser Hadian, who is a professor at the University of Tehran. He's going to be joined by Bilal Saab, who's a senior fellow with our Middle East Peace and Security Initiative at the Brent Scrocroft Center of the Atlantic Council, um, who's, going to, who's going to take a broader view of Iran's intentions in the Gulf and the Middle East. Today's event is part of the South Asia Center's Iran Task Force, which is chaired by Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt and led by senior fellow, senior fellow Barbara Slavin. I would like to thank the Plashers Fund for their generous and continuous support of the Iran Task Force. I'll now turn the floor to Barbara, who will introduce our speakers and moderate today's discussion. Thank you, Huma. Thank you all for coming on this beautiful day. Uh, well, once again, I think our timing is really excellent. And uh, with apparently the Congress about to hold its nose and allow the Iran agreement to go forward, uh, one of the key questions is how will Iran behave in the region? Will it take uh, additional funds from sanctions relief and, uh, in the words of opponents, march into a fifth Arab capital? Will it double down on more interventionist policies or not? And uh, for that reason, we thought it would be very important to have a discussion, and we are so lucky because, as Huma mentioned, uh, we have uh, a guest from Tehran, Nasser Hadian. Uh, he's a professor of political science at the Faculty of Law and Political Science at the University of Tehran. He's also served there as director of graduate studies He's been a visiting professor and research scholar at the Middle East Institute and at the Middle East and Asian Languages and Cultures Department at Columbia University. Nasser also held a prominent role at the Center for Strategic Research, which is a think tank in Iran that's close to President Hassan Rouhani. And his areas of scholarly and research interests include Iranian contemporary politics, Iran's nuclear program, and political Islam. Uh, Nasser got his PhD in political science from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, and then we have our own Bilal Saab, uh, who, as mentioned, is at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Uh, Bilal has more than 13 years of experience working as an analyst, advisor, and corporate manager on the Middle East. He's a military and security expert with a focus on the, uh, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, Lebanon, Syria, Hezbollah, Iran's role and influence in the, in the Levant. Uh, Bilal has a BA from the American University of Beirut and two master's degrees from the University of St. Andrews and the University of Maryland. And uh, I recommend to you an excellent paper that he did just a couple of months ago which dealt with the issue of containing, quote unquote, uh, Iran. 
Um, I'm going to invite our guests to, to come up now and take a seat and uh, sort of begin with a question to Nasser. So, gentlemen, why don't you come up here? In the middle, Nasser, okay, and Bilal on the other side. Nasser has written a new paper, which should be up on our website, so you can uh, read it yourself. Uh, but I'm going to begin by asking him to discuss some of the points in this paper and also to pose a question to him. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I interviewed a very uh, uh, astute uh, journalist in uh, Iran, a man named Mohammad Atrianfar. And he told me, when I asked him about Iranian influence in the region, he said, we are not going to stretch our legs beyond the capacity of our carpets. So my question to you, Nasser, is how big is that carpet? <laughs> uh, how big should it be? How big will it be? And what is the nature of the debate that is taking place in Iran about uh, Iranian regional policy in particular? OK, let me thank you very much, Barbara. I appreciate you for uh, inviting me uh, to sharing to share my ideas with you regarding uh, Iran's nuclear program and the regional issue. Uh, but about the anecdote which you used, I would like to a little bit give more nuances to it. You know, there was a time which you know the carpets in Iran were much bigger, and in fact uh, we used to carpet almost every space which we had in the room. But recently, you know, the fashion is the carpets just are in the middle, and they are much smaller. <laughs> Uh, but of course, finer, <laughs> if I can say that one. Uh, so uh, I guess uh, I can say, uh, basically, there is not one view in Iran now regarding, uh, regarding the region. And uh, as I have mentioned in the report, which you can read it, you know, there are two views there. One view, basically, which I have called them uh, a sort of pro-stabilization uh, view. They are the one who call for basically uh, Iran to be uh, to be a stabilizing force in the region and produce security in the region. All around us are insecure and unstable. In other words, sitting in Tehran, what you have, what you are seeing is Afghanistan in our east is uh, not secure uh, and you know. We have a lot of problem. Uh, we have a lot of problem with uh, uh, with, uh, with with refugees, with drugs, narcotics uh, in Afghanistan. We are somehow worried about Pakistan as well, uh, uh, particularly in the Balochistan area and the rise of extremism there. We are worried about Iraq and what's happening there, and also Syria, Lebanon to a lesser extent, uh, Yemen. So they argue that within next 10 to 15 years, the primary objective of our foreign policy should be stabilizing the region. And Iran should be a country that basically produce security. The argument is we cannot be an island of security and be dismissive of the insecurity around us. That's the official view of Iran, and that's the dominant view in Iran. But there is an alternative view, which recently is gaining more popularity in the policy, policy circles and in the think tanks, 
and you can find them, of course, at the university, among the pundits, uh, that they would argue, you know, uh, Iran is already overstretched. We don't have any more resources to allocate. And uh, basically, we are fighting with Daesh now. We are the primary force in fighting with Daesh, uh, of course, uh, through Iraqis and the militia in Iraq. And that's not our fight, basically. They would argue by such a fight, we would make ourselves the target of Daesh attack. If Daesh has not yet attacked Iran, it is not because they are not capable of doing, but rather it is because they have not made the decision to do so. Otherwise, they can easily penetrate in, into our territory and explode bombs in Mashhad, Tehran, Shiraz, Zahedan, wherever. So why we have to do that? The argument is our engagement should be minimal. Minimal basically to those who are really vital and necessity. Meaning Baghdad and South in Iraq and Damascus and the coastal area uh, basically in uh, Syria. So if Sunnis are really interested to have Daesh as their representative, as their government, why we should bother? So, I mean, if they want it, let them have it. Uh, but after all, we don't, I mean, it is not all that much concern for us. It is going to be, I mean, if they consolidate the power, uh, basically that's going to be a threat, not for us, but it's going to be a threat for the Saudis, Jordanians, Yemenis, to a lesser extent, Turks and Americans. Uh, their arguments also is that because they know that if they want to come to these south, they have to fight. And the fight is going to be severe, and uh, the fight is going to be a serious fight. And normally, if we assume they are not totally crazy, just only partially crazy, uh, you know, the natural trajectory of the territorial expansion would be toward uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, um, and Yemen, rather than going toward the area which they have, I mean, which they are going to face a, a heavy fight. So uh, the, argument, uh, the argument of the second group would be basically, uh, thus, uh, we are better off to withdraw and to make our engagement to the, to the minimal level. Uh, but uh, the first group arguments would be, uh, this is somehow naive, that if you think that you know, in a long, longer term, you know, we are not going to face problem with the Daesh. Uh, they are going to create. They are going to be a major threat, if not in a short term, but rather in a long term, they are going to be a major threat for us. Uh, but also, the issue of Kurdistan is very important. What would happen in Kurdistan? In other words, I mean, if uh, the South announced the independence, the courts for sure is going to go for the independence and what would be uh, what would be the your position because iran now i can argue is the most important country who has called for preservation of territorial integrity of iraq and syria and is supporting that idea so if iran withdraw from that position the disintegration of these two countries are very easy to imagine uh, so, but this first group, which is a dominant view, uh, would say that, okay, what would be the positions toward uh, Kurdistan? If uh, Iraqi courts announce their or claim their independence, what would be your position? Uh, 
course, this second group's argument would be, uh, you know, we have a good relations with our own courts. We have a good relations with the Iraqi courts. We have important infra uh, intelligence, uh, security, and commercial infrastructures in Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan. We can benefit from the situation, and uh, they are not going to pose a major, a major threat for us. Uh, but as I said, I mean, this group think these are naive arguments, and uh, I mean, the, the independence of Kurdistan is basically is opening the Pandora box uh, in the region, and uh, then we are going to we are going to face an entirely a different uh, a different Middle East with not just one, two, three, but rather many areas which may claim for independence. Uh, thus, uh, it is not appropriate. Uh, to uh, basically support any sort of cessational movement or accept the independence of uh, independence of any 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 one of these territories, any of these independent territories. Rather, we have to preserve the territorial integrities of this country. So let me stop here. Right. Okay. Thank you, Nasser. That's very helpful. Um, most people in Washington, I think, are not even aware that there is a foreign policy debate going on in Iran. Now, as you have mentioned and have also written in, in your paper, the dominant view still in Iran is that Iran must be a force for what it calls stabilization. But of course, Bilal, uh, you know very well that what Iran calls stabilization, uh, Arab countries call uh, meddling or worse uh, in the affairs of Arab countries. So I'm going to ask you to uh, give your analysis of Nasser's paper. and. Uh, how you think the Iranian debate can be somehow factored into the debate that's going on in the Arab world, if there is a debate, um, if they haven't already reached a conclusion about Iran, how they can be influenced to see Iran, Iran's activities in a less negative light. Sure. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, my wife tells me that my speaking skills have regressed, so I'm going to go back to basics with a few um, slides. Um, <coughs> two parts to this conversation. There's Iranian intentions and Iranian capabilities. Uh, so what Iran wants to do, and regardless of what it wants to do, what its capabilities are. So I'll address both uh, because I think they're important. The issue of Iranian intentions is still a big question mark for me. I listened very carefully to what Nasser had to say, uh, and I read with great interest the paper that he wrote. But to me, when I hear of a significant debate happening inside Tehran, I look for two things. Evidence of that debate, so news commentary, uh, statements by Iranian leaders, um, and uh, even some reporting about it. And I also look for a clear description of what the players are and what their views are. I did not hear, hear that today. Um, and I understand that there are certain limitations with which um, you have to deal with Nasser, uh, but I think it will be extremely useful and important, and I cannot overstate this, for the public policy community in Washington and for several key players in the region to know who is advocating for what inside Tehran. This is hardly an academic exercise. Let me turn to the issue of capabilities. Let's see if I can work this. And I think I have that printed out outside just in case I am very quick with my slides. The issue of capabilities is very important because in the American policy debate about Iran and its regional role, uh, those capabilities are either completely misdiagnosed or worse, neglected. So uh, I'd like to offer a little bit of nuance into that uh, because it's important. Never underestimate what Iran can do in the region 
uh, to advance its own interests. Uh, Marine barracks bombing, 1983, Hobart Towers, 1996. The IEDs in Iraq uh, that killed dozens of American soldiers, 196 to be precise, according to declassified Pentagon documents. Uh, the Iran-Iraq war, that lasted for eight years. At the very end of it, the other side, the Iraqis, which was heavily financed by some Arab Gulf states and armed to the teeth by the West, that side was the one that was life on, on life support until the very end of his life, that's Saddam Hussein. The Iranian nation survived very well. Hezbollah, the most successful non-state actor in the world, the most lethal, the most disciplined, that's all because of Iran. Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not as effective, but probably the most important uh, security threats to the Israelis to this date. Let me say it bluntly, uh, Lebanon will not have a president unless Iran says so. Hezbollah has no meaningful future without the uh, decision of Iran. Assad's fate and Syria's future is a function of Iranian designs. Israel's national security is a function, among others, of Iranian designs. Gulf security overall is a function of Iranian designs. Iran has succeeded in entangling its main adversary, that's Saudi Arabia, in a very vicious fight in Yemen. Iran has a dominant influence, whether we like it or not, in Iraq. The only actor that can actually credibly threaten it is ISIS today. Finally, there cannot be any major wars in that part of the world without Iran having a say in it, or one of its surrogates. So major questions of war and peace, that's an Iranian decision as well. Those are no small feats. Because of these accomplishments, Iran today has considerable political bargaining power in the region. Uh, and so if you're sitting in Tehran today, you're feeling good about your regional position. However, Iranian capabilities are a very mixed bag. And this is where the bad news starts. The proxy wars in which Iran is involved today have stabilized not a single state and have failed to build peace. Iran may have succeeded in bleeding its Saudi adversary, but that comes with a heavy price. That comes with a price of telling the world that it is supporting an illegitimate militia, which is the Houthis, that has revolted against uh, an elected and legitimate president. The Houthis today are and that support for the Houthis will neither reconstruct the country or help it to achieve a political solution. The Iranians have been successful in protecting Assad in Syria, but that comes with heavy casualties for Hezbollah, alienating almost the entire Sunni world, and perhaps causing some military overstretch for the IRGC. The Economist had a terrific piece about that um, and the risks of overstretched. Maybe they're exaggerating the claim, but there's some truth to it. On Iraq, whoever said it was okay to give Qasem Soleimani a free hand in Iraqi politics is clearly wrong. Uh, some of the most important and influential people in Iraq today, uh, Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, uh, rumor has it, fired a very angry letter to uh, his counterpart, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, complaining about the Iranian commander's handling of Iraq's Sunni uh, politicians, perhaps alienating them and uh, not handling them with care. 
Rumor also has it that Mohsen Rizai, the former RRGC commander, is now back in action to uh, hold him in check or perhaps just watch over his shoulders. There's also a price for awakening Gulf and Arab nationalism because of this excessive intervention in their affairs. Anti-Iranianism, if that's a word I can use, is at an all-time high in the Sunni world today. Because of Yemen, here I get to military effectiveness for the Arab Gulf states, or at least some of them. Because of Yemen, some of these countries are actually now learning how to wage combat with some of the most important and powerful weapons on Earth. That's never good news for the Iranians. With all the talk about Iran's prowess in uh, asymmetric warfare, we have to remember that this is a country that has very modest conventional capabilities also. Uh, the Iranian Air Force is irrelevant in any military scenario or any dogfight with Arab Gulf fighter jets. Iran has considerable uh, skills in land warfare due primarily to the Iran-Iraq war, but if you think about the Iranian military threat today, the last thing really you should be worried about is Iran's land capabilities. Territorial conquests should not really be occupying the top of our list of concerns. Iran's missile arsenal is quite impressive. It's not reliable, though. It's not precise. It's not as lethal as we think it is. Moreover, its adversaries happen not to be defenseless also. They field some of the most powerful missile defense systems in the world. And there has been some progress, let's not overstate it, over the past two, three years of integrating those missile defenses regionally. So in short, Iran is very good at asymmetric warfare, but whether it's on land or at sea, the most it could do is create problems, not really necessarily win wars. So let's put to rest any notion that Iran can close the Strait of Hormuz anytime it wants. It simply can't. In closing, I know I've taken too much of your time, Barbara. It matters, less, it matters less what Iran's intentions are when we try to assess the country's regional role after the nuclear deal. What matters much more is actions, and those speak much louder. Those Iranian capabilities that I described are clearly not inadequate or inferior. But they also do not match the rhetoric coming out of Washington and some of the Arab Gulf states that we are about to witness a rising regional hegemon that is bent on conquest and domination. That's just simply not true. There may be a debate going on inside Iran today. But I think an equally important, if not far more important, debate that should be happening today, and you wrote about it, Nasser, in your paper, is between Iran and the Arab Gulf states. How it happens, I don't know. Oman has done a good you know, job at mediating that. It doesn't matter what the intermediary is. What matters is that it should happen as quickly as possible. Okay. I hope that was useful. Thanks. Thanks, Bilal. Uh, there's a lot, obviously, to respond to. Uh, Nasser, um, I think one thing we all have to keep in mind, and, and you wrote about this in your paper, is that Iran's policies are based on Iran's threat perceptions. And as you point out, Iran feels the major threats come from the United States and Israel, and its asymmetric policies, its support of Hezbollah, 
are based on that. I would argue, frankly, with a couple of things that Bilal said. I think Hezbollah would continue even if there wasn't an Iran because it's such a strong component of Lebanese society now. Um, but I'll let you uh, tackle some of his other points. Thank you very much. Uh, Bilal, you know, for the first part of your talk, you know, uh, I'm sure there are many in Iran who would love to hear what you said. You know, I wish, you know, that I wish, I mean, uh, they really think, not just only wish, they really think that they have such a capabilities. Uh, but the, sec the second part of your talk, I guess, is far closer to reality, and they don't like to hear that. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me go uh, uh, and address a number of uh, issues which you raised. Um, first of all, you know, regarding the Saudi Arabia and the GCC and the Yemen, you know, they're all different in the Iraq and Syria. And our relation with them are very different too. Yemen, for instance, is far away from us. And the impact of uh, Yemen's on, on Iran's security is minimal. And to be frank with you, Yemen is mostly the failure of uh, GCC policy rather than the success of our policy. Of course, I'm sure in Iran they would love to get the credit you know, uh, that, you know, that yes, this is the success of our policy. We have been to do this and that in Yemen. But the reality is, you know, we spend just only a few millions of dollars, and that's all. And we consider Yemen to be a quagmire. Anyone's go there is going to remain there. We are not under any illusion in Iran. No group, no camp, no organization, no, per, no uh, tendencies in Iran are under any, under any illusion that we cannot do anything in, in Yemen. If GCC, with all the resources which they had in the last several years, have not been to able to to stabilize the situation there, to create a stable government there, how possibly Iran, with far, far limited resources, will be, will, will be able to do? And, uh, you know, lumping all these countries together and saying that, okay, Iran is, in, uh, Iran is basically meddling in the affairs of this, this government, I expect them to hear, to be frank, from the Saudis, politicians, not, but not from you. Uh, but because, you know, these are not real, I mean, these are far, I mean, yeah, there is always the distance between the perception and reality, but these are too far. These perceptions are too far from reality. Even, I mean, the Americans have reported repeatedly our, 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 our influence in Yemen is very limited, very limited. But anyway, the GCC, which I would like to concentrate my talk on, is, you know, uh, to me, Saudis have been basically, uh, have adopted the policies regarding Iran since the revolution, and in fact, I can say even before the revolution, to, which I have called it the containment policy. They have tried to contain Iran. They have built important infrastructure inside Iran, in a number of our provinces, you know, training students, spending money, giving money, and, and, and building mosques, so forth and so on, inside Iran. And they have, been, uh, they have tried to build infrastructure all along Iran, all along Iran's border. In other words, if, if Saudis are in Pakistan, spending money there, all in all these madrasas, it is they are there basically because they feel that they have to have a base to contain Iran. Same thing in Afghanistan. There is no reason for them to be in these places. They are not even the Arab countries. Of course, I don't. In other words, I don't uh, think that you know being Arab or Muslim or whatever give us a privilege or a special entitlement to intervene in these countries. But you know that how much money they are spending there. In Iraq, if we are in Iraq, if we are in Syria, if we are in Lebanon, that we are, it is basically on the basis of our threat perception. 
our threat perception is threat or coming from Israel and about the US. Thus, on the basis of that threat perception, we define the strategic depth of our forces. So the strategic depth would be then Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, not Yemen, of course. Thus, we have uh, basically, we have tried to have an infrastructure there to do two most important things. First, deter Israelis from taking military action against us. Number two, basically uh, retaliation in case of an attack. We are not there because we are challenging the Saudis. We are not in Lebanon or in Syria or in Iraq because we want to challenge the GCC or, uh, uh, or, uh, or Saudi Arabia. In our threat perception, go through every literature, we don't see the Saudi Arabia as a threat. We don't prioritize them as a top threat. They are very much at the bottom. In fact, up to two years ago, you could not even, even you could not find anything. So we are not, we don't consider them as our rivals. We don't consider that we are competing with them. We don't consider to be a threat. Thus, we have not developed infrastructure to, uh, to deal with the challenge, to deal with threat. But that's exactly the opposite in Saudi Arabia. If they are in Lebanon, they are not there because they want to challenge the uh, Israelis. They, want, they are there because they want to challenge us. If they are in Iraq, they are not challenging the uh, US or uh, Israelis. They are there because they want to challenge us. So in all these areas, these are the Saudis who are challenging us, not we challenge them or we consider them as, uh, as a threat. But you know, then coming and blaming Iran, that OK, Iran is challenging Saudis, is really strange for me, but even a stranger is they can easily balance us. As you mentioned, you know, the combined population is greater than, greater than Iraq under Saddam. Saddam could balance us relatively easily in terms of population, in terms of the military weaponries. They have far more sophisticated weaponries than Saddam had. They had uh, a superpower behind it. They have a lot of uh, economic wealth. They can easily balance us. Why, why they are scared of Iran then? Why they cannot balance us? To me, it is inherent in the political system. You know, no matter how many times President Obama tell them, you know, we are, we are behind you, we are going to give you this and that weaponries, they are going to support you. Uh, no matter how much we tell them, you know, believe us, we are, you are not a threat to us, we don't want to do anything with you, but inherently, because they are, they are outsourcing their security, they feel insecure. It is not Saudis. Anyone who outsources their security to someone else is going to feel insecure. So that's, and, and that's, that's natural, and that has been the case throughout the history. Because always they are worried that possibly you know, the other guy is going to be, is going to be uh, sold or bought by the other side. I mean, they may think that, OK, we are going to pay a higher price to the Americans. And so Americans are going to side with us, and they are going to be left to themselves. So unless they rely on their own resources to provide security for themselves, they are, going to, they are going to feel threatened no matter what we tell them or what the Americans tell them. It's not, it's not going to resolve. And we are, to me, we are a convenient enemy for them. You know, the particularly for the pundits, for their, you know, uh, uh, for some of the policymakers, for some of them, for some of the journalists, you know, they can easily attack us without paying any cost. 
attacking Americans in their newspaper, you know, it has a cost. Attacking even Israeli has a cost. But attacking Iran is really convenient. And so we are a convenient enemy, I mean, now, which fulfill uh, a number of uh, psychological desires of a number of these pundits, basically, in these countries. Otherwise, just look at our behavior. Forget about the words. Forget about the rhetorics. As you mentioned, the actions. Name, just tell me the actions which Iran has taken against the Saudis. Tell me the actions. You know, forget about the, those Mecca situation at the beginning. In the last 30 years, tell me, OK, this is number one, number two action you have taken against the Saudis. You have taken against the Kuwaitis. And after all, we have a very good relationship with Omanis. The most secret talk of Iran and the US was basically mediated by Oman. We have a very good relationship with Kuwaitis and Qataris. And we do not, we have a, I mean, with Bahrain, it is only four or five years we have, a, we, have, we do not have a good relation. Even with the Saudi Arabia, you know, that our relationship on the Khatami and, 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 and Rafsanjani have been relatively fine. The only country which did not have a good relation with us since the revolution is the UAE. And ironically, we have more than 20 flights a day from Tehran, you know, and from Iran to, do, to Dubai, which practically we have a very good relationship. Hardly we have, we, have, we do not have even, in fact, even 20 flights a day to Shiraz or Yazd or uh, Mashhad, which we have to Dubai. So that's a strange that still this myth of, you know, Iran threat is there because when you, when you look at it one by one, when you deconstruct it, you don't know why it is there, unless, as I said, I mean, Iran is a convenient enemy. I don't want this to, to uh, become just a debate between you two, so I'm going to open it up uh, to the floor and uh, ask that you say your name and wait for the microphone, and please ask a, a question. So, Harlan, did you have one? Or Yeah. Uh, wait for the microphone up here in front. Barbara, I hope I'll have a chance to You will. You will. <laughs> Um, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council and had the privilege of being on Barbara's Iran Task Force. Thank you both very much. I have a question for Nasser and then one for Bilal. Um, I have likened the JCPO to an arranged marriage between two parties who don't trust each other and a prenuptial agreement that only deals with a dowry and not how to make the marriage work. <laughs> so I'd like to know um, what do you think really convinced Iran that this was a good time to have this particular agreement? And what can Iran do over the long term to make it succeed? Because people will be coming out of the woodwork to try to make it fail. And for Bilal, uh, I think that the JCPO was a masterstroke by the administration. But I critique the administration because while they can put things in place, they stink at execution. Go back to the AFPAC strategy, the pivot to Asia, all this nonsense, the Affordable Health Care Act. I mean, how they could screw that up in execution. So what would you recommend? for the longer term on the part of the administration to do that it's not, to make sure that this agreement has every opportunity for success, and if it does fail, what would be plan B, and how do you put in place the means to implement that? Okay, yes, sir. So very quickly, uh, I've already discussed that issue uh, before, but I said there are three reasons which made the diplomacy a necessity. Two reasons facilitating, facilitated that, and one reason encouraged that. The three reasons which, which necessitated it was number one, war. We thought war, uh, no matter how much the chances are slim, but still, 
you know, a country thinks that it, they, can be, they can experience a war, uh, uh, basically uh, is not a good thing to have. So they have, they have to eliminate the chances of this, even the slim chances of the war. So that's, what, that's why, that's the number one reason we thought uh, diplomacy was a necessity. From the US side, US thought, US thought war cannot achieve uh, them to, their, to achieve their objectives because uh, basically I've discussed three scenarios of war and I, as, as you know the NIE has uh, reported for at least since 2007, that's not my argument, my argument is different, that Iran uh, has stopped basically in 2003 to build nuclear, uh, uh, to weaponize its nuclear program. Thus, a war can guarantee Iran is going to weaponize its program. In other words, it's going to, at most, to delay a couple of years. And after that, Iran is going to uh, basically wholeheartedly go for the war. If Pakistan, 40 years ago, with far limited resources, uh, human and material could build a bomb, if we decide to make a bomb, we can. If we have not made a decision to make the bomb, it is because it does not serve our interest. It not only it is not going to increase or enhance our security, but rather it is going to increase all vulnerabilities. I provided 14 reasons why that is the case. But anyway, we thought war, the US thought war is not going to help them to achieve their objectives. The number two issue was sanctions. I mean, those who negotiated the new sanctions are important. They knew that sanctions have impacted our economy and the standard of living. But they have not made us desperate. Once I was having a dinner with Barbara's colleague in Tehran, and she asked me, "Can you take me to a, uh, can you take me to a, a place in Tehran that I see the impact of sanctions?" I told her, "If you expect me to take you to a store with shelves are empty, or people are jumping at the top of one another to get food or whatever, such a place doesn't exist." So, sanctions have not made us desperate, but for sure it has impacted our life. So Rouhani has promised the people it's going to improve the life. So that's why uh, he had to do something. And sanctions was very important, uh, very important factor. For Americans, they thought no matter how much sanctions can be crippling, still it's not going to force Iran to capitulation. Capitulation means zero enrichment. There's no way. I mean, so no way that can happen. They concluded it is not an option. Thus, uh, they thought diplomacy is a better chance. And the third factor which necessitated was a lack of an attractive alternative. What was the alternative, realistically? More sanction on your part? We would have inject, injected UF6 into our second generation centrifuges. More sanctions, we have operationalized the, another 10,000 uh, installed uh, centrifuges. More sanctions, uh, operationalization of Iraq reactor plutonium path, so-called plutonium path. So, and after two years we would have come back, Iranians had suffered through the process, but you are talking now with a much more nuclearly capable Iran. 40, 50,000 centrifuges, second generation, and stockpile of enriched uranium far greater than, uh, than 10,000, possibly 20, 25,000 kilograms, and in fact even 1,000 kilograms of 20% enriched uranium. So thanks God the alternative was not attractive to any one of us. These three factors made it necessary. But two factors facilitated the process. These two factors are, number one, 
A momentum was created because of the Iranian election. No one can plan to create a momentum. Momentums happen. They are not a planned phenomenon. But thanks God, they were both very careful, both administration here, and they were careful to use the momentum which, was, which happened because of the election. Rouhani had, in, in his uh, campaign, said, you know, if centrifuges are spinning, so should the life of the people. So he had a mandate. Uh, and also the next, this was number one factor toward uh, basically facilitate the process was this momentum. And the number two was presence of two teams in both capitals who really, at the same time, wanted the diplomacy to work. There, were, there have been times Americans wanted diplomacy, uh, Iranians didn't want. There was time Iranians wanted and Americans didn't want. But this time, we had two teams. We had Zarif, Kerry, uh, Zarif and uh, Rouhani in Iran, and Kerry and Obama here. They both wanted the deal. So these two factors facilitated the deal. And the last factor which encouraged the deal was a regional issue. You know, our friends were in trouble in, in the region, from Syria, from Lebanon, all the way to Syria, Lebanon. Uh, uh, and Iran, and also uh, 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 and Iraq, and also in Afghanistan. So we thought, you know, we need we need to pay attention to these issues, and they are far more important than to have 5,000 centrifuges or 10,000 centrifuges. One sentence. So uh, uh, so we thought that you know uh, these regional issues are important for us, and Americans thought, you know, they, if they want to reduce their presence in the region and pay more attention to East Asia. They, want, they don't want Iran to be a spoiler. So it encouraged them to explore if anything is possible by, by this deal. Bilal, I want to add to uh, Harlan's question in terms of recommendations uh, for the administration. We've heard a lot of talk lately about compensating Israel, compensating the GCC for the Iran deal, as though this deal is somehow detracting from their security rather than, than adding to it. And uh, my question is whether the provision of yet more sophisticated weaponry of bunker-busting bombs and whatnot to Israel in particular, but also GCC, won't simply increase Iran's threat perception and actually have the reverse effect will make, will, will cause a kind of uh, arms race and more conflict in the region. All right. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we are what we are, but the implementation has been miserable. Uh, I think that the Iranians uh, have played a weak hand masterfully. And the Americans have played a strong hand miserably. Uh, but we are what we are. Uh, the ultimate purpose was noble right from the start. Um, I'll leave it to nuclear experts such as Bob Einhorn and others to really give you details about what is the best way to make sure that this deal does not fail or is not cheated by Iran. But I'll give you three recommendations that are quite broad uh, that could be useful for the immediate future and for the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, you have to have impeccable verification. There's no question about that. You have to have clear language on consequences of failure to comply with the provisions of the deal. Um, that's not an option. You have to get serious about the Camp David deliverables. Uh, you show hesitation or ineffectiveness on uh, the delivery of those. The United States is going to end up with far fewer friends in that part of the world. Um, Compensation, I don't like that term. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what contributes to regional stability should be done. That should be the ultimate purpose. Uh, bunker buster bombs and all that, I'm not sure how that really contributes to that. Uh, an armed race is really hard to measure. I'm not sure that just the provision of military hardware is what contributes to arms races. Uh, there's tons of scholarship about that. We're not going to get into that. Uh, 
If, with your permission, I think it's only fair that I would just respond very briefly to sure. some of the assertions that uh, Nasser made earlier, which sure. uh, I quite respect, but it's just useful to provide the counter argument to it, because uh, uh, I think it's important for the debate, not just here, but over there as well. Um, I think the central theme as what, of what Nasser is saying is that Iran is misunderstood. And if only we better understand it, and it's primarily defensive posture in the region, things could be so much better. Uh, fair enough. We, I think, have a lot of misperceptions about that country. Some are own failing because there's quite a notoriously opaque system over there. It's really hard to read. It is becoming increasingly easier to read due to the long uh, negotiations that have happened between the United States and Iran. We know much better about Iran today, but there's still a lot that we do not know. Uh, what Nasser describes as stabilizing efforts, as you mentioned, Barbara, are seen by his adversary as nothing but destabilizing. Uh, and it's not a theoretical conversation. There is quite a substantial amount of evidence that goes against Iran's claim. For example, when you asked me, Nasser, what is Iran doing uh, for the Saudis to threaten their security? Uh, this has never been a direct confrontation between the two. It's always been uh, an indirect confrontation through proxy warfare. When Iran lends its full support to a man in Damascus that has single-handedly broken that country and caused a uh, tremendous amount of human catastrophe and tragedy, and also has contributed to spill over that civil war into Iraq, that in no way contributes to stability. When Iran commits terrorist acts inside Bahrain, and Iran plants terrorist cells inside Kuwait, that in no way contributes to stability. When Iran provides military assistance to a militia, and mind you, I 100% agree with you that Yemen is really not a priority for the Iranians, but I'm not sure why they still dabble in the politics of Yemen, regardless, just to really poke at the Saudis. That does not contribute to stability. The verdict is still out on what the Iranians do in Iraq. I think there's plenty to praise the Iranian role in Iraq because they are, like no other actor, fighting ISIS. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, let me just, let me just finish my point. One area which we have acted against the Saudis in Syria, in Iraq, against the Saudis, not against the stability. Not against just the Sunnis. As I mentioned yeah. to you earlier, Nasser, there's never been direct confrontation between the two countries. But Saudis are challenging us directly. It is not indirect. Let me make my final point, and then you can describe to me how they're actually doing that directly. Uh, there is plenty to praise in the Iranian role in Iraq, but it is worth asking if the end justifies the means. When Iran recruits Shiite militias to fight ISIS, that exacerbates sectarianism, right. which in itself prolongs the survival of ISIS. So you look at these lists of actions that are really incontrovertible. There's nothing much to debate about them in terms of them having a negative impact on regional stability. I'm not sure why Iran is misunderstood or uh, there is so much to debate about its regional role, at least how the Arab Gulf states view it and how many folks in this town also view it. Um, I'll leave it to that. Uh, okay, okay. I, I want to I give our audience uh, time for more questions, but can I borrow this? Because I have something written sure. here that I wanted to read. This is something I, I wrote for a paper on Iranian regional influence for the U.S. Institute of Peace. 
some years ago, but I think this is still true. Uh, Iran's goals appear to be largely defensive, to achieve strategic depth and safeguarded system against foreign intervention, to have a major say in regional decisions, and to prevent or minimize actions that might run counter to Iranian interests. In the service of those interests, Iran has been willing to sacrifice many non-Iranian lives. So. I've never heard an assessment of a country that is actually bent on offensive action. It's always perceived in defensive okay. uh, okay. perspective. Let me, let me open to, uh, let's see, uh, gentleman right there, if you could take the microphone. Say your name and ask a question. Hi, Alex Tassina, Council on Foreign Relations. I have a question for Professor Hadian. Um, I wonder if you could talk some on next year's uh, Assembly of Experts election and the Majlis election. Uh, do you see the Guardian Council blocking a substantial number of uh, moderates and reformists again? And do you think the success of the nuclear deal and lifting sanctions will have a positive or negative impact on the moderate success? That's a great question. Okay. Yeah. We are going to have a Majlis election, an Assembly of Experts election in next February. and. Uh, very briefly answering your questions, yes, we expect we, meaning uh, forces who are pro, uh, pro the government, and we think, you know, or what I call the pro-modernization forces. We expect to see a massive disqualification of the big names uh, by the Council of Guardians, and, uh, but still we expect to win the election. <laughs> uh, because uh, the people are hopeful from what has happened, from the deal, and although they, have, they, are not gonna, they are not going to see any tangible impact in their life, but still the hope is there, the optimism is there. And that optimism would lead to uh, basically uh, increasing of the participation rate. And as particip participation rate increases, the chances of these forces winning the major elections are higher. And normally has been the case, the presidents normally have been able to do the following election to get the control of uh, of, uh, of the majlis. But assembly of experts is an entirely different thing. Assembly of experts, uh, for those of you who you know, don't know, are made up of 86 people. And they are all supposed to be uh, basically uh, uh, Muslim scholars, which happens normally these are clerics. But it is not, need not to be clerics, but normally uh, they are clerics. And they, are, they have three main functions to supervise, to, to uh, not supervise, but rather to check the power of the supreme leader. And in case of he's not handling the job to be removed, and in case of his death, to be replaced. Uh, so they, do, they are not all that important in terms of day-to-day -day affairs of the countries. But they are important for uh, appointing the next supreme leader. Uh, so in that regard, they are important, but you know, uh, again, we, meaning pro-modernization forces, are not that much hopeful which we can have a major input in that, uh, in that election. It is going to be elections basically between the traditional conservative forces of the society and, uh, and the rivals which are hardliners. So we expect and we hope the traditional conservatives can win that election and they have a good chance of winning that elections. But I wish to answer to add this very short <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, uh, regarding uh, basically, uh, you know, you said about the Bahrain and Kuwait. First of all, we have, we have not exploded any bomb in Kuwait. No one has claimed that. 
I just don't know where to get the, I mean, <coughs> to get the, to get the, uh, the information that Iran has exploded bomb in Kuwait. No, but there's, go ahead. But, but there was a discovery, they said, of explosives that they said had come from Iran. Yeah, but, you know, that's, you know, there is no, there is no incentive, you know, that, you know, there is no incentive on the part of Iranian to do anything in Kuwait. We have not doing, we have not been doing it, and we have a good relation with Kuwait. But Bahrain is a different case. And in fact, Bahrain, there are many in Iran, secular and non-secular, they feel that the Iran, uh, Iranian government has been so passive in its reaction to Bahrain. To be frank with you, for many it was really humiliating to see Saudi Arabia sending forces and invading Bahrain and scapegoating Iran for what they are doing. It is, believe me, sitting in Tehran, it is humiliating to see that, you know, why, why Saudi should do that? Why they should send the forces there? In Bahrain, as, as I'm telling you, yes, we are involved in Kuwait, um, uh, we are involved in uh, Iraq, we are involved in Syria, we are involved in Afghanistan, we are involved uh, in, uh, we are involved in uh, Lebanon, but we are not involved in Bahrain. It was not yeah. Iran. No, sir, I, I want yeah. to ask, uh, you, we had mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to give you a chance also to, to say something about this. The impression that you get from the opponents of the nuclear deal here in, in this country is that you know it was a huge win for Iran, a huge loss for the United States. But there is a substantial component of, of individuals in Iran who think they gave away too much. So I just wanted to give you a chance to mention that. Okay, thank, thank you for giving me the chance for that one. <laughs> because uh, I have been critical of it myself too, of course. At the end of the day, I supported the deal. But I developed four criteria for assessing the deal. These four criterias are, uh, you know, the timing, strategic weight of what was given and what was taken, strategic composition of what was taken and what was uh, given, and the fourth one is uh, irreversibility, reversibility issue. On the strategic, uh, on timing, what I mean is cash for cash, promise for promise. Go through 159 pages of uh, of the documents. You will see that in terms of the timing, I mean, the concession which Iran has given is far more. First of all, we have to remove 2,000 centrifuges from Purdue. We have to remove about 12, 13,000 centrifuges from Natanz. We have to dilute or get rid of about 11,000 kilograms of enriched uranium. We have to transform the core of Iraq reactor. We have to answer the PMDs, possible military dimension questions to the IAEA. And after we did all of those things, then the IAEA should say, I'm satisfied. Then the sanctions could be suspended uh, afterward. Frankly, I would have not signed this deal. I would have negotiated it differently. What would happen if IAEA say, I'm not satisfied? What would happen if Congress, US Congress, pass a law with two-third, with, with veto proof, and uh, prevent the president to, to, take, uh, to take whatever measure he is supposed to take. What would happen? So I would have, the way I would have made the deal has been, I mean, we get rid of 2,000 centrifuges in Fordue, you have to lift these sanctions. We get another 5,000, you are going to do this one. That was not the right way to do, and that's exactly what happened. Of course, I'm optimist. I trust this ad administration, but it should have not been relied on trust, as you guys say here. It should have been basically based on 
you know, a different kind of verification, a different kind of uh, way of handling this issue. And number two, strategic weight of what was given and what's taken. I'm not one of those guys who would say it should have been 50-50. You know, that's too much expecting from Iranians. Basically negotiating with, with six major powers and expecting the 50-50 is good. If we can quantify, which I have done it in my book, that you know, if, I, if I can quantify what was given and what was taken, to me, even it is not 70-30. But still, the strategic weight is not all that important for me personally. What is more important is the strategic composition of what was given and taken. What, what, what I mean by that is, basically, personally, I would have preferred to have only three cascades of second generation centrifuges and reaching in Fordue and closing down the Iraq and, 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 uh, and Natanz. But what we have is 5,000 centrifuges, about 5,049 centrifuges in Natanz of the first generations, which are, you know, very old, very old uh, models. And uh, that's what I'm critical of, basically, uh, these and, I mean, what was, what the composition of what was given and what was taken. But on the US side, you had four principles which guided the negotiation. Number one was basically, uh, basically four paths toward the bomb. So you closed on all the four paths. Then there was the issue was detection. So that's why you basically uh, uh, supported a very robust verification system beyond additional protocol. There are a number of things beyond additional protocol. In fact, even in it, not only additional protocol, but beyond additional protocol. Number three, concept number three is break out or a sneak out, meaning, okay, we detect uh, your compliance or your cheating. What, I mean, we want, have, we want to have enough time to react. And that is the time from the time we decide to have enough fissile material for one bomb. It, it is now about two to three months. They want to be in one year. So that concept guided, uh, guided your uh, negotiation. And that's, that breakout is a subject of basically uh, number of centrifuges, type of centrifuges, and enrichment process. So that's why we, we have to go all the way down to 30, 300 kilograms of enriched uranium. Concept number four is reversibility, irreversibility. Many of the things we are going to do are irreversible. Iraq is irreversible. And uh, diluting this or sending out this uh, uh, stockpile of enriched uranium, they are irreversible. But you're all the time calling it, although I mean practically some of the sanctions are, uh, are, uh, are irreversible, but theoretically, legally, they are very much reversible. Snapback, basically, uh, in, the, uh, in the agreement, and you know, uh, the architecture of uh, the structure of the sanctions are there. They can be uh, easily uh, be back. So that's what I say that by, four, by these four criteria, we feel that you know, what was given and what, what, what was taken is not equal. What I supported the deal at the end of the day. You may say why you supported the deal because of the conse strategic consequences of the deal. The four strategic consequences which are very important for me. Desecuritization, I don't discuss them, just desecuritization, normalization of relationship, regional issue, they are not, none of them are in the deal. But these are the consequences of the deal. And number four are sanctions, 
with sanctions, of course, is a part of the deal. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bilal, you want to say something before I take another question? Yeah, just or? a very quick minute. Um, <clears throat> I'd love to go back to the key point here in this conversation, which is the main argument of the paper, which is this debate. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm <clears throat> fascinated by it, but I'm just not satisfied with how we were ending it. I, I realize the limitations, once again, to what you, you can want, say. You want also. him to be more specific. Yeah. And, well, I mean, let me just frame it differently. Perhaps it's a little bit more comfortable. What I'd love to know is this debate that is happening. Is this the typical, and I know it's not a useful description, moderate versus hardliner uh, uh, camp, or is this happening within the hardline camp? Where does Rouhani and his team fall in this? I mean, this is all extremely useful for everybody. Okay. Can I Please, say yeah. I mean, the debate is, as I mentioned, between the, I mean, across the board. You can find among the hardliners, Revolutionary Guard, foreign ministry people, think tank, policymakers, professors of university. We are all debating in different think tanks about this policy. What should be done? Generally, Generally, government is a, is, is a supporter of the first perspective. Not everyone in the government, you can find it in the foreign ministry. Personally, I've debated with them that they support the first deal. Yeah, you know, key positions in all of these places. Uh, but as I mentioned, the general and dominant view is the first one. But by no means, that's the only view. They are debating. But as you mentioned, you mentioned a good point, and that's action. I said the indication of what I said is in the actions. If you see in practice, Iraqis and Iranians are not moving toward Muslims, that's a good, good way of knowing the impact of the second group on the policy. Okay, and same thing in Syria. If you see there are places that, uh, that the Syrian government, Hezbollah and Iranians, are putting a strong fight, but there are places that they don't care. It means that the impact of the second group on the first group. So these are the actions, and you can look at the indications. Yeah, lady right here. Hi, Nazanin Suresh with IHS, and my question is related to what you just um, discussed, and I would like to hear from both of you, because I suspect you would have different um, views on this. But it seems to me that two of the individuals within Iran that sort of personify or put a face on Iran's two different foreign policy um, uh, camps are uh, Zarif and Soleimani. And uh, before the um, nuclear agreement, uh, Zarif basically had the nuclear profile, while Soleimani and the IRGC has, have uh, and continue to have the regional uh, file. Um, now, Post-deal, it seems that the Zarif-Rohani camp, they're capitalizing on this sort of political success and um, having some sort of a free range, um, you know, seeking diplomacy within the region. Now, my question is, to what extent do you think that Zarif and Rohani um, have, uh, you know, their, uh, whether they are actually testing the waters for, um, you know, actually um, exceeding restrictions and coming up with some sort of diplomatic solution within the region um, in uh, uh, you know, achieving Iran's objectives in the region, or um, whether they are sort of Khamenei's tool of putting some lipstick on Iran's involvement um, within the region. Um, so basically, whether it is just an act or policy. OK. Zarif versus Soleimani. That's not a good dichotomy. In fact, they are in the same, I mean, they are not all that fundamentally different. Um, um, basically, you know, Ghazab Soleimani, uh, the way he has been perceived as a mythical figure, you know, 
as a very powerful individual, you know, like a Superman. Here, basically, and in Iran, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, that's not the case. In fact, uh, he's a very pragmatic uh, general and was a uh, relatively good sense of the situation on the ground. Uh, but the most important, the key factor to bring to your attention is these decisions are not being made by any one individual. We have an institution called Supreme National Security Council. All of them, they're all there. They debate the issues, all, all the issues of major issues, basically. They debate it there, and once the decisions, uh, the, once the decisions are made, they're going to be implemented by everyone. So in that, in that institution, there are people who, are, who can be more powerful than both Zarif and Qasem Soleimani. Shamkhani, former commander of uh, our Navy and very key figure in, uh, very key figure in the Revolutionary Guard, basically, uh, can be argued is more powerful than both of these men regarding the regional issue. Rouhani was by far is exercising more influence on regional issue than anyone else. And also, so this is not, this is not something that, you know, Qasem Soleimani would, re, would just only report, report to the Supreme Leader and they, they make the decision, or Qasem Soleimani by himself make these decisions. It is not the case. Basically, it is going to be discussed and debated and, and, uh, and make, finally make a decision in the Supreme National Security Council. Though the Supreme Leader has the authority legally to uh, uh, veto the decisions, but normally, almost, I can say, more than 90, 80% of the time, he would support the decision which has been made by the Supreme National Security Council. It is not a one-man show or the Zarif for the nuclear issue. Zarif was a negotiator. He was not making the decisions. The decisions about the red lines, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, those decisions were made somewhere else, not in the foreign ministry. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, maybe I should the time is allocated to me to answer. Maybe I should give it back to Nasser since obviously he's ideally placed to answer that. Uh, but I'll share with you a recent conversation I had with a, quite a senior Omani official who, about this false dichotomy, actually. Uh, and um, he said the Iranians are incredibly smart. They show the world that there is actually a dichotomy in views and in practice between figures like Soleimani and uh, Zarif. But in fact, in practice, everybody's working so harmoniously. Perhaps not as well, but uh, it is not within the system so fractional and factionalized as the world uh, would like to believe. Mm. Uh, gentleman over here. Yeah, this is Hassan from uh, Pakistan. I am a journalist. So I have a question to uh, Nasser. Uh, that uh, if the deal is finally approved by the Congress, uh, there is a fear uh, in the uh, Middle East that it will fuel arms race in the region. So because it will also tend to amount to recognizing Iran as a nuclear power. So how would you respond to that fear? Um, as I said, I guess, I mean, I, I won't agree with you. I do not agree with you that, I mean, it would lead to an arm race. And in fact, the reason that we have an agreement is to prevent an arm race. We don't have an agreement, yet there was a possibility. There was a possibility that, you know, what, as I said, when you discuss about the alternative, the alternatives were not all that, uh, all that attractive. 
And if there was a military attack, that, that would have guaranteed Iran to have to uh, weaponize its program. And weaponization, for sure, we know it's going to uh, lead to an arms race. But with the deal, in fact, that would stop any arms race, if you mean basically uh, nuclear arms race. But for, for, uh, for arming ourselves, as I said, you know, we do not have, we do, there is still there is going to be sanctions. And we do not have all that resources. And we guess we don't need that type of armament uh, uh, to be able to defend ourselves for the future. The type of threat which we are facing is, is a different kind. Is it refugees? Is it narcotics? Is it chaos? Uh, it is not a country-to-country -country war that we need to have sophisticated weaponries or whatever. So that's the type of a thing which we have. And uh, we hope, basically, that the deal can, can, can help us to concentrate more on the region and to stabilize. And one more thing about the stabilization. In fact, this, uh, I mean, the first group which are pro-stabilization, in fact, they, are, they would go, they would like to go all the way if, they, it, if it demands and needs to cooperate with Saudis, with uh, Americans, uh, to stabilize the regions. So they are open to it, and they would like to adopt that measure to stabilize the regime. That's the type of threat which we are really worried about it now in Tehran. Okay. I'm going to go to Faye here in the front, and then to Laura Rosen back there. Thank you very much for the talk. I'm Faye Mokhtadur. I have a question for you, Balal. Uh, you keep mentioning that Iran uh, is a threat to the Saudi Arabia. Could you be a little bit more specific that what are the specific threats to the national security of the Saudis that it's coming from Iran? And my other question is that the, it seems like, clear me if I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Saudi government is, is a very closed, tight political structure. They have had this for centuries. And it seems to me from the outsiders that they, they are more afraid that this thing eventually will collapse. Uh, and, and that's what they're afraid of rather than a threat coming from Iran. So correct me. Thank you. I wish we had actually a an official or representative from any of the Gulf states to speak here, because the last thing I want this to look like as if I'm speaking on their behalf, which is clearly not the case. Um, I will always speak to you as an analyst. So you asked me what is the uh, threat coming from Iran to Saudi Arabia. As I mentioned to Nasser earlier, the threat is not direct. The threat is indirect through the proxies that they support throughout the region. Every both countries, which seem to be the main adversaries in the region, have vested interests in a number of theaters, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in Iraq, Syria, and others. And each one backs its own proxy. Therefore, unfortunately, in many ways, this confrontation is seen as zero sum. Now, the most immediate, if you were to really push me, security threat coming from Iran to Saudi Arabia is of what's going on in Yemen and how the Saudis perceive that their backing of the Houthis and other allies is contributing to the de degradation of the national security of Saudi Arabia. That seems to be the most imminent, due to physical proximity, threat to Saudi Arabia. What goes on in Lebanon, as you very well know, Iran supports the most powerful actor in Lebanon, which is Hezbollah. In many ways, half the Lebanese population, if not more, sees as a major detriment to the stability of that country. Right? And Saudi Arabia has had its own vested interest in Lebanon for quite some time. Um, perhaps the biggest damage that has happened to Saudi interest uh, and security interests as well happened with the assassination of Rafi Hariri, and there's a, no, no secret about it, a huge implicit uh, 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 knowledge in the region that those who were behind that assassination were the Iranians and the Syrians 
whoever they may have pulled the plug, it doesn't matter. Uh, Iraq, the same thing. So I'll go back to repeating the same thing over and over again. It's never been a direct confrontation between the two. Yeah. It is an asymmetric uh, a confrontation that is conducted through uh, proxies. Yeah. Laura, back there. Thank you for the terrific panel. I wanted. Uh, I did not, sorry, respond to the Saudi state collapsing. Um, maybe we'll get to that okay. if time allows. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, Nasser, I just wanted to ask you to answer something that Bilal asked as well. Um, you know, the Iranians have emphasized after the deal, focusing on the region, and um, even the deputy foreign minister had, had said there might be Iran GCC talks soon, but my understanding is uh, they haven't been scheduled yet. Um, why haven't we seen these, this dialogue begin? Is it the GCC or Saudi side that's reluctant to engage? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean Zarif traveled to two of them. I mean, to, to Zarif traveled to Kuwait and Qatar, but with the Saudis, you know, they are reluctant. In fact, uh, you know, I know for a fact we have tried to approach them several times, you know, for the resolution or for the cooperation, uh, at least in the track two. Uh, to cooperation, to deal with the regional issue, but they are reluctant. They have their own perceptions, and uh, as I mentioned, I mean personally, uh, it is hard for me to convince them the otherwise. They have made up their mind, and no matter what is happening in reality, they have their own perceptions, and it's hard to crack them. And uh, and as I mentioned, you know, uh, no matter how much U.S. or we tell them, I mean, we are not perceiving you as a threat but they perceive us as a threat. We are also a convenient enemy for them. I don't see any reason why they have, why, why they have to quit it very quickly, unless something major, you know, unfortunately some major things happen in the region, that they may decide, you know, uh, they may decide to come and to work, uh, uh, and to cooperate with the others, uh, to handle or to contain, the, to contain the insecurity in the region. I don't think it's useful or fair to try to understand one threat perception and completely dis disregard the other. I think that, and the, hence the, the primary significance of this debate, really. Um, a set of useful conversations and uh, between these two heavyweights mm -hmm. is, is long overdue. I mean, it's, it's, yes. it's ridiculous how it has been, uh, and Nasser obviously blames the Saudis for not having an interest or not being ready for it. Uh, I think that if the conditions are, uh, are right for it, I think the Saudis would be definitely interested in having that so conversation. That's, do you, do you My point is that United should be unconditional. I mean, if you, I know what, what I mean, they, they are waiting to see as if Assad collapsed, and they would say then, you know, but the point is how to, uh, how to do the negotiation right now. Right now, let's negotiate to come up with a solution for the problems. Nasser, does Iran have a practical solution if Assad falls? I mean, as we speak, there is more pressure on his forces than we've seen in a very long time. Good of course, uh, the point is, the analysis in Tehran is the collapse uh, or the removal of Assad as an authoritarian regime would lead to the collapse of the regime. And collapse of regime is going to create more chaos that no one interest is going to be set. So the point is right now to negotiate for the transition uh, for, for Assad to be removed or to leave the office, not right away, but two, three years down the road. In other words, that cannot be a precondition for the negotiation right. because Assad would not agree. That should be the results of the negotiation, the consequences of the negotiation. 
But that's not the way the Saudis would perceive. But that's exact, I mean, that's entirely another issue. My point is, in fact, that's my perception, I may be wrong. If tomorrow Assad say that, okay, King Salman, I'm totally fine with you. I would like to submit myself to your will. They are not going to have any problem with Assad, no matter how much crime he has committed. The point is, they are fighting. They are in Syria. They are fighting not Assad. They are fighting us. That's that's the point which you don't. They, yeah. Balal, you don't need to consideration. We are not fighting Saudis in Syria. Okay, gentlemen. Yes, uh, Nasser, Bill Jones from Executive Intelligence Review. I was wondering if you could say something about the changing uh, threat perception in Iran, given the very dramatic changes in the international situation. For decades, of course, this was the U.S. versus Iran. Uh, the U.S. policy was to isolate Iran. If they couldn't get a color revolution, they would isolate it. But that isolation has been broken partially by this agreement, but also by the change in the international situation. I'll point out three things. China's uh, role in the Middle East, the promise of the Silk Road economic belt, which is going to encompass Iran as well as the Arab countries. And China is going to be playing a more important role there. We saw that Putin now is sending troops to Syria. I don't think because it's simply a power move on his part, but that there's also a concern for the whole thing spilling out into chaos, and he wants a different trajectory. And he has gotten support from the Europeans on that. The US is critical and is saying the usual things, but the Europeans are saying, maybe this is the way we have to go to get a diplomatic solution. And thirdly, the change on the Europeans, given the refugee situation, where not only did they decide to take in the refugees, but also critical voices being raised about the US and their policy in the region that has caused that. That's a different ball game that we're working, a different world we're working in. How does that reflect in, in the perception, in the, in the threat perceptions in Iran? Very good question, yeah. Very shortly, they said they, they, they think they have been vindicated. They like it. You know, they would say that, okay, that's exactly, that has been our argument. And they feel that, you know, uh, in other words, uh, in other words, they feel that you know uh, we have to continue the type of policies which we have had. But that's very simplifying the uh, the reality because, as I mentioned, there is not just one group in Iran, and there are debates, and they feel that okay, you know, uh, in other words, uh, the agreement. This is particularly the view of Rouhani. Uh, the agreement with, would give us a good chance to play a different role. It would, it would give us a chance to, do, to be de-securitized. US as the principal uh, securitizing actor was able to securitize Iran, uh, particularly under former president Ahmadinejad, successfully securitize Iran. And once it securitized Iran, they were able to pass a number of resolution in the Security Council. And hopefully now, by this deal, we can basically uh, move toward desecuritization, and then hopefully normalization, and then we can deal with the regional issues, and uh, and as you mentioned, with the, with the, with particularly with China, China being considered as a rising power, we are debating more and more about China, not no, no longer as a factory, and we as a market. China is being perceived as a strategic. Uh, player in the world because no longer the energy security for China is going to be uh, is going to be taken as granted 
In other words, up to now, they have relied on the US to provide the security for the energy. But as a rising power, it's a country possibly in 10 years, a decade from now, China is going to be the, the biggest economy in the world. So China wants to be sure about the energy security. In other words, that's why they are going to be, they are going to be in Iran, not as, uh, not just only uh, seeking the market, or we look at them as a factory, but rather to see, to seek a sort of more strategic partnership. So we are, we, are, we are in the midst of a lot of debate about China. China's role in the future and China's role in Iran. John, did you have a question also? Sorry. Um, yeah, John, uh, John Limbert from U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, in, my question is really about this, the, these debates uh, on both sides of the Persian Gulf. And the question, my question is, are there, are there voices in these debates that are advocating for better relations with the neighbors? In other words, saying, uh, look, uh, whatever our problems, these, pe these people, these others, they are our neighbors. They are not going away. And we share a culture, and we share a history, and we share a religion. Um, and therefore, we need to change the existing situation, which is not in our interest. Thank you, John. John, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, to report to you, it's not analysis. When we sit in these meetings in think tanks in Tehran, you know, we never consider Saudi Arabia as an enemy. We never consider them as a threat. That we design the strategies, okay, you know, uh, how to deal with them. We consider, we consider them exactly as a neighbor. We think that we have to improve their, hardly find a voice, hardly. You know, in the last two years, the situation is a bit different. But even in the last two years, how do you find a voice which is say, no, we shouldn't have a good relation with the Saudi Arabia? I want to say even hardliner. You know, people like Rouhani, Rafsanjani, you know, they have been all along support, supportive of a better relation with Saudi Arabia. And they thought under Ahmadinejad, you know, Rafsanjani several times wanted to go to, uh, to go to King Abdullah. He thought he has a very good relation with him. And he thought personal relationships are important and he can improve the relationship. But even today, in fact, you know, he's ready to do that. There are a number of other uh, uh, important forces within Iran who are ready to take the initiative to improve the relationship with Saudi Arabia. As I mentioned, it is very much one-sided. We don't consider them as enemy. Why we, should, in, in, why we should consider Kuwait or Qatar as an enemy? As a, perceive them as a threat. But the other side is true. I mean, we are at the top of the the threat list. In other words, we are at the top of the threat list. In fact, uh, you know, uh, once personally, was talking to uh, Shamkhani, national security advisor. Of course, he was not the national security advisor. He said, you know, he's he's Arab. Uh, he's coming from Khuzestan and he's uh, Arab. I said, why why don't you travel to these countries, and uh, you know, uh, in fact, to improve the relationship with. You, because of the la same language you talk, you, you, may, you may be able to give them a more confidence uh, that, okay, I mean, we are not considering or perceiving you as a threat.
But what can be done, in fact, I'm not telling that the Iranians should not take any initiative. For sure we have to, to take initiative to uh, put to rest their concerns uh, about us as a threat, but it is not going to be easy thing to do. As I mentioned now, in particular last two years or three years, you know, we have become their convenient enemy. There has to be a reason why they have to live it. Uh, he asked about the like Arab. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, let, let me let Hala just add to it, and then we'll we'll get an answer from Bilal. A quick follow-up question. Say your name. To, uh, to uh, I'm Hala Svanier from the Wilson yeah. Center. To what John uh, asked you, don't you think that the animosity goes back to when Ayatollah Khomeini? started talking about the Saudi royal family as an illegitimate presence to look after the holy places, number one. Number two, I think Iran's coolness was during the Iran-Iraq war when the, all of the Arab countries, except for Syria, supported Saddam. And my question is, also to uh, Balal, why did Saudi Arabia wait so long to send an ambassador to Iraq, number one? Number two, when the Iranian got involved with Hezbollah, the initial state, why didn't the Saudis get involved? Money always speaks. Thank you. Okay, regarding the, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point, but that, that, big, that was for the first decade of revolution. We, get, we got over it, um, you know. We, uh, we, thought we, we said those stuff, but after that, we had a better relationship with them, particularly on the Rafsanjani, and in fact, Khatami, uh, Khatami too. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, historically, you are right. Also, there may be in our culture, you know, the negative view against one another. Uh, but if we put aside even those stuff, those are not reasons why we shouldn't have a better relationship. And as I mentioned, that there is more, we have to look at the actions, not just the rhetorics. If you look at the action, the GCC was formed, as you mentioned, not against Israel, it was formed against Iran. They supported all along the Iraqi in the war, but still, after all these animosities, and after what, in fact, you are right. I mean, we, we, at the beginning, we, we did not even call them Saudi Arabia. We called them Hejaz, the old name, you know. We didn't want to recognize the Saudis. But that's, that's, that's very much at the beginning of the revolution. But afterward, you know, things changed. And we cannot, we cannot explain the current behavior on the basis of what happened then because, you know, we have had a number of other, we have had, uh, we have had much different relationship after those, after those years. Um, Nasser, you speak with much confidence and candor. It's really something to admire. Uh, and I, if you were to go to court with a legal case such as yours, um, I think the judge is going to have a hard time really defending you. Uh, you. You have to understand that regardless of how valid and true Iran's claims are today, that country has tons of explaining to do to the rest of the world. Uh, it's not enough to be right if it is, in fact, that you are right. 
you have to explain it to the community of nations around you that just simply do not believe what you're saying. Uh, the problem is also that there is tons of evidence actually that goes against what you're saying. Uh, everybody wants to believe what you're saying, but it's really hard to. Um, on the Arab side, John, you asked who is really interested in uh, enhancing relations and um, creating a, a dialogue between both sides. It's always a mistake to speak of the GCC as one entity, right? And you know that very well. Um, at the top of that community of people who are actively advocating for dialogue is the Omanis. And they've been doing it for a long time. Uh, never equate the Saudis with the Emiratis or the Kuwaitis or the Qataris or the Bahrainis. I think the Kuwaitis are rather indifferent when it comes to relations with Iran. It's not adversarial, but it's also not entirely positive. Uh, Bahrain has a very difficult perspective when it comes to uh, uh, Iran, and they're in an entirely different league for reasons of their own. I think Qatar's relations with Iran, and Nasser, I think you alluded to it, are drastically improving uh, to the chagrin of their neighbors. Um, Saudi Arabia, we've been talking about it all day. There's no point. Uh, and Nasser, you're exactly right. I think that perhaps the most intense and adversarial relationship is between Abu Dhabi and Iran. And both of them have their own reasons. As you very well said, Dubai has fewer concerns about Iran than Abu Dhabi. I'm afraid I, I know there are many more hands out there, but we are at an end. I invite you to stay and ask further questions if, if, uh, if you have them. But I think this has been a very interesting debate that we've had here on the Iranian foreign policy debate. And I thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.